Greetings, everyone. This is Dr. Dave Donahue. Welcome back to the Health Rules Podcast for episode number four. So this is the podcast where we build a health-related checklist each episode. We interview a world expert on a particular topic, and together we craft our best attempt at capturing the most important steps that you can follow to prevent a particular disease or to have an optimal outcome in a particular area. We then craft, we take that conversation, we craft the best checklist we can and we publish it on our website healthrules.org on a web page. That web page contains the checklist. It contains a handout version of the checklist that you can post somewhere or give to your letter carrier or your auto mechanic or your mother-in-law and, and, or your doctor and have a conversation about that checklist. And we also have this recording published and we also solicit your feedback. So we try to, and we have references too, scientific references. We try to be as scientific and evidence-based as we possibly can and we try to, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what we're getting right, what we're getting wrong. So uh, I encourage you to go to the website, healthrules.org, find the page related to this recording and give us some feedback. Tell me what steps we missed and, and what we didn't miss. When you're building a checklist, it's inherent that you have to take some approximation of what are the best practices. You can't capture every single consideration. So we try to find the highlights. We try to shoot for about 10 to 15 items in our checklists. So healthrules.org is devoted to evidence-based medicine. We want to find the very best information we can to help ideally address or prevent a particular disease condition. So we borrow from the best that traditional allopathic medicine has to offer, that preventive medicine or lifestyle medicine have to offer, um, that healthcare delivery science has to offer to tell us what's safe and what's not, not so safe, and um, also what, what we know from sustainability medicine, which holds that the health of our planet and the health of the individual are intertwined. So this week, this particular session, we are going to address the topic of cardiovascular health in women. So our checklist is going to relate to how can we prevent this leading killer, the number one killer among women. And I am delighted that I have a guest, a very special guest. It is not just a lifestyle medicine physician. It is a lifestyle medicine cardiologist and not just a lifestyle medicine cardiologist. It is, we are going to have the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Dr. Kate Collings. So Dr. Kate Collings is a very accomplished cardiologist who is absolutely brilliant at what she does, which is preventing uh, all of our chronic conditions, but especially cardiovascular disease. So hopefully you're going to find this conversation as interesting as I did. And uh, hang on to your seats because here we go. Dr. Kate Collings, welcome to the Health Rules Podcast. I'm happy to be here, David. <laughs> it is a pleasure to have you here. Um, could you kindly introduce yourself? 
Sure, sure. I'm Kate Collings. Um, I'm a board certified cardiologist and a lifestyle medicine practitioner. Uh, my current hat is that I direct lifestyle medicine for El Camino Health and Silicon Valley Medical Development. Um, the prior 25 years I spent as a clinical cardiologist in all facets of cardiology, you know, from outpatient to ICU uh, to imaging, as well as uh, serving as medical director for a cardiopulmonary rehab uh, center in my local system. And then the other hat I wear is as president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So um, where I know you and uh, very excited to be part of that organization. And yes, and you just started within that role, correct? That's right, that's right. You know, I've been part of ACLM in some capacity with the board. I don't know if it's four years or if it's if it's six years, it's, it's a long time. And, um, you know, it's given me as much as I've given it. I mean, I've just been able to immerse myself and, and, and be, you know, shoulder to shoulder with the greats in lifestyle medicine, which, you know, obviously has really benefited me. And, you know, I've tried to make a contribution, but it's been an exciting time. It helps to be one of the greats in lifestyle medicine, to, to <laughs> yeah. getting get those close quarters with the, the other greats. Um, this, this is so cool. I, I've just got to know, I'm so curious, like, um, how did you come to ACLM? I mean, you're a cardiologist, right? You, you've been practicing cardiology for how many years? Oh, you know, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. If you count uh, up my, my fellowship training and everything, sure. Right. right. How on earth did you, did you come to this, this place where, where you're right. the president of ACLM? That's right. It's a, it's a fun, it's a fun kind of a circle story, I would say. Um, you know, in my undergraduate years, I was very interested in the physiology of exercise. So the fact that exercise could be so powerful um, in improving our health. And that was my undergraduate ma major. And then I went on to graduate school in physiology of exercise. And there, one of the hats I wore was monitoring heart patients as, as they went through rehabilitation. And so most mornings, you know, whether it was freezing cold in Madison, Wisconsin, or warm and balmy, I was out jogging with patients that in those days did not have stents and bypass. So they were very high risk. They'd had big heart attacks. And, um, you know, all I was trying to do was make sure I was there in case they had an arrhythmia. But I became really impressed with the power of lifestyle in, in these people, who in these individuals. Um, I did research in uh, the cardiovascular, I should say the cardiovascular effects, the maternal fetal effects of cardiovascular exercise in women. That was my uh, master's thesis. And then I went off into the world of medicine, which is disease, disease, and pills and procedures. So at about the time I was doing yet another recertification in cardiology, somehow uh, I came across Lifestyle Medicine Conference and I said, well, while I'm studying for the boards, I'm gonna go see what this Lifestyle Medicine is all about. And it was in, um, I think it was in Laguna Beach, California. So I would study for my boards for about five hours and then I'd go and uh, listen to talks by, you know, Lifestyle Medicine, Trailblazers and so forth. 
And, you know, just it just the light went off that learning more about transplant immunology, um, you know, and heart failure, while important, we need those things, just wasn't sensible. You know, we really needed to bend the curve at an earlier place. And, and I just really believed, you know, going back that we had the capacity to do so much more with lifestyle. You know, I've been completely lost during all of my cardiology training. So, uh, so it was at that time that I just volunteered to become part of the organization as much to understand it more, to contribute and to learn. And, you know, once I got my foot in the door, I really realized it was my tribe. This made sense. Uh, the other had, had just got itself, it just worn me down. And, and, you know, I think it also came at a time when I'd followed so many patients and they had more things cropping up that I knew were lifestyle related. And I still wasn't feeling like I was helping them enough. So I really wanted to figure out a way I could help my patients. Right, right. I, that, that's, uh, that, that's interesting that you, you portray this juxtaposition between studying for the, the, the deep in the weeds of allopathic traditional cardiology. Absolutely. At the same time that you're at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine conference, learning big picture, how to prevent, you know, hello, our leading killer. Yeah. Um, and so I could see how that's a, a big transformational moment. Um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so how can, uh, and we want to get to the, the, the business of building this checklist, but mm -hmm. uh, before we get there, how can people um, you know, follow you or uh, become a patient at your clinic or is there a website, a, a, a presence? Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not yet, and I don't anticipate I will be a social media guru. Uh, so you won't find me on a Facebook page uh, or you know, any such thing. But you can find me through um, lifestyle medicine forward slash elcaminohealth.org. And you'll see the website for um, the you know, institution where I practice now. And through that, you'll see events and classes and how to, you know, make a con uh, set up an appointment for consultation um, and so forth. Yeah, we do. We're doing a lot of exciting things. I'm very, very passionate about culinary medicine. I think I told you that um, a few weeks ago. Yeah, this is and this is like totally novel stuff to a lot of people. Culinary medicine. That's a thing. And, and yeah, and it is. It is. Uh, well, maybe it's, we'll get a, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's really the, you know, the art of cooking, you know, with uh, the science of nutrition and just really learning how to make healthy food. Um, as, as Dr. Hauser would say, unapologetically delicious. Um, and, you know, there's, it's just such a fun way to bring people to the recognition of the power of lifestyle medicine and the power of their choices. Did you ever think that as a cardiologist, you would eventually be teaching people how to cook? <laughs> I didn't, but it is one of my favorite things to do. So I enjoy it. It's kind of the um, creative, creative side to my life. Oh my gosh, you've got so many of those. Well, let's start with a checklist. Um, we talked okay. a little bit before we recorded about the topic and what, what, was, what would be a title that would capture what we're gonna talk about? 
Like, well, I think one of the topics that we wanted to talk about was lifestyle as it relates to women and, and cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, that's an area I've, I've spent, I've treated a lot of women over the years and, and really um, have a, a passion in that as well. And, and we can talk about that. That's an awesome topic. Um, so we'll, we'll tentatively title it Checklist to Prevent Cardiovascular Disease in Women. That's sure. Perfect. Okay. What are the steps? What what is and I guess this is for both people, women who want to avoid heart disease and their loved ones who want that want them to avoid heart disease, but also for clinicians who want to help their patients avoid heart disease. Sure, that's cool. So, so right. what, what what are the steps? What can we do? Well, I mean, I think you you appreciate that you know heart disease doesn't just happen suddenly when we're fifty years old. We we know that the the pathophysiology starts when people are quite young. And for women, one of the pivotal uh, points in their life is in their perinatal, uh, you know, prenatal, post, postnatal uh, years. And so we know that things like preeclampsia, hypertension that develops during pregnancy, or even preterm labor, or even small uh, baby size, you know, small low birth weight babies, those all tell us something about women's vascular system um, because the placenta is you know, an enormous bed of, of vessels. And so women that have those uh, untoward you know, events during their um, perinatal years, um, this is really a marker of their cardiovascular health later in life. So that's sort of the first tick point, you know? Um, are they carrying, are women carrying their pregnancies um, completely normal? They're not preterm, they don't have any, you know, pre uh, gestational diabetes as well, or gestational hypertension or preeclampsia and so forth. Uh, so that should, should tell women a lot about their cardiovascular risk at, you know, a relatively young age and lead them to take more interest and in, in the checklist, which has to do you know, with their blood pressure for the next, you know, 10 years uh, carefully, because many times the blood pressure will come back to normal in the postpartum, you know, or maybe about three months. And then, you know, busy with family, busy with young children, all the things that come into people's lives at those, in those years, they can easily take their eye off the fact that their blood pressure may be creeping up. So understanding um, that, uh, same thing with gestational uh, diabetes. You know, the women there are at more risk for subsequently having insulin resistance and prediabetes. So having, you know, an increased awareness and screening for those conditions um, are really important in those postpartum years. You know, another pregnancy comes up and so forth. And, and, and it's so easy for women to let go of their own health needs in that period of time because they're they're focused on their children and maybe their career and there's a lot to juggle oh yeah they're postpartum depression they're um Absolutely. trying to make ends meet they're trying to get back to work um you can certainly understand why women um, who have just had a baby are not focused on that slightly elevated blood pressure or remembering the fact that they had gestational diabetes but but yeah. um, would you agree that gestational diabetes really kind of is, is crying out. I mean, it's a very, you know, a, alarming signal that, yes. that you, yeah, because it signifies a lot of bad things to come, right? 
Right, right, right. It, it, even when it goes away, it, it's telling, you know, a lot about what's going on in the inside, you know, over time. And, you know, it's a stress test. Pregnancy can be think, thought of as a stress test. So it's a stress test for blood pressure. It's a stress test for, for diabetes and glucose regulation. And so, you know, that stress goes away. You know, everybody sighs and says, hey, we're out of that risk, but we're really not. It really was um, a stress test. And, you know, we think about stress tests in terms of uh, detecting underlying coronary artery disease when we put people on treadmills. So in many ways, pregnancy is a is a stress test, a physiological stress uh, test of a different of a different type. Right, and the signals are a little more subtle, a little little different, and you need somebody who's mindful of of this to interpret those signals and tell you, look, you're at risk of heart disease. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the OB guides are doing a great job of this, and better and better in identifying um, these women, and you know, oftentimes uh, referring them to, to cardiologists, you know, early on. So many times the OB-GYNs are women's primary care physicians for a number of years. You probably know that. And then when women are out of their childbearing years, then they start thinking about a family, family practice doctor or an internist. But sometimes they really rely on that OB-gynecologist to um, shepherd them. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that similarly, oftentimes, you know, elevated lipids are seen in those years as well. I think less of a prognostic feature to subsequent cardiovascular disease, but certainly, um, you know, something that should be taken into account. And just like hypertension, we know the number of years that somebody experiences high cholesterol and triglyceride levels the number of years that they experience high blood pressure, you know, are, are important variables in the progression and development of cardiovascular disease. So um, those are really uh, important um, things to follow in those, those perinatal years. Awesome. Okay. So it seems like, uh, I don't know if this is like an item number one in our checklist, but um be mindful of your um, risk risk factors. Well, we didn't, I mean, be mindful of the signals that you might have early heart disease developing, cardiovascular disease developing. Mm -hmm. like, um, what about, and you mentioned some of the risk factors, the, the elevated lipids that, that you have younger in life, mm -hmm. the, the higher um, blood pressure, um, family history, right? Certainly, yeah, family history. Um, and that's, we're talking about like a primary relative, a brother, sister, a mother, father. Right. Has, um, and, and what constitutes a family history of heart disease that's worrisome? Well, for, you know, for, for typically it's been, you know, less than 55 years for a male first degree res, re, uh, relative and less than 65 for a first degree uh, female re, relative. You know, I'm not super quantitative about this, David. I, I kind of always, when I talk to people, I get a gestalt because then I'm like searching for, okay, was your dad a smoker? You know, uh, was your mother X, Y, or Z? And, and usually when I peel the, you know, the onion, you start to see, aha, that's kind of a pure family history. That's, that's telling me a whole lot more because their lifestyle, uh, I can sort out their lifestyle. So there's no absolutes in this, but those are sort of the guidelines. 
but it, you know, it's, it bears, it's, it's good to take, to gain more insight into what that, that first degree relative, relative, how they led their life and, and how did they lead their lifestyle? Because maybe it was all lifestyle born and, and this patient. And I've seen that more times than not, that somebody has this daunting family history. But when I dig around, you know, somebody was a smoker, you know, somebody had a very poor diet, right. uh, any number of those things. And I'm like, eh, you know, we maybe. need to, you know, peek at that, but maybe I'm not as concerned about that family history. Got it. So we can kind of risk stratify ourselves and understand how much risk we have based on a little bit of that family history, um, parsing through those details of, is this really all that worrisome? Uh, and then um, looking at our traditional risk factors, which are, you mentioned the cholesterol, you mentioned the diabetes and blood pressure. Those are the, the big three, I guess, do you, do you think? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Tobacco. And tobacco. Yeah. And, uh, and then watching for those, well, you, you mentioned one natural form of stress test, which is, um, you know, pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other tests we can get too. Um, do you recommend, do you have an approach to getting some of those other tests like um, coronary calcium score or other? Sure. Yeah. So, so coronary calcium score is, um, you know, really coming into its time so much more than, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so for those of you in the audience that may not know what that is, it's it's a um, an X-ray test. So it has some, you know, it's a tomography test. Um, it is a, I think it's a poor man's angiogram, and it basically tells you the volume of coronary uh, coronary artery calcium in the entire coronary distribution. So it's by no means an angiogram where it's talking about how uh, severe a lesion is, is it 70%, is it 90%? You don't get any of that information. You just get a total uh, calcium score and you get a little bit about the distribution. Is that calcium all localized in one artery or is it diffusely through the coronary arteries? And where do you use it? So because it does involve radiation, it's really isn't something that we should recommend for everyone. Um, and it's strictly a screening test and not a test that one would do in intervals to judge how they were doing, you know, in, I'm going to do it once a year, like a mammogram or once a year or every five years, like a colonoscopy. It's really a one time or maybe two time kind of test. It takes about five to 10 minutes. Um, the actual radiation dose, I can't quote you, but it's, it's a reasonable thing to do. But would it do it for a low-risk person? And the answer would be no. So when we use it, it's typically in people who have higher cholesterol levels or, or other additional cardiovascular risks. And we're trying to decide, do they have some established disease that we need to be more aggressive with? We might leave them alone in terms of not using procedures, or they might leave them, I'm sorry, medications, or they might leave themselves alone and not do lifestyle changes. But if we did a coronary artery score and we found that they had established coronary artery disease, two things can happen. One, it can be motivating for them to say, aha, you know, maybe, maybe I don't need to wait and I shouldn't wait. 
And for the physician, it, it also is really a great piece of information because sometimes physicians don't really know how serious a high cholesterol is for that particular individual. They know in general populations, but for that particular individual. And so that helps the physician uh, risk stratify the individual and it helps them um, then really, you know, optimize lifestyle, you know, go full tilt on lifestyle. And if other things are needed after that, then, you know, medications are needed to augment that cholesterol lowering. Well, then there's a particular reason to do that because, because the coronary calcium score is high. Now, if it was very high, it is also a, not an unreasonable thing to then do a stress test because we know a good percentage of people, you know, maybe up to 30% of people have what we call silent ischemia. And ischemia, of course, is insufficient blood flow to the, to the coronary muscle, to the heart. Um, and they can be just carrying on and, and not know. And, you know, a mild degree of coronary ischemia on a stress test is not going to be a, a amplify risk in an enormous amount, but certainly if you had a very high calcium score and then you had a markedly abnormal stress test, it would be a reason to, to take things a little bit further and, and look at that angiogram to make sure. Got it. So, um, and this is how I've used coronary calcium scans as well. It's, it's, the science is pretty good. You know, I certainly understand the arguments that maybe we shouldn't do them as eagerly, but, but you, it's motivating for folks because you, you get a mm -hmm. scan and, 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 you, and, and you've got some objective evidence that no, you know, your heart isn't doing that because people tell themselves these narratives like, oh, my heart's fine and I don't have to worry about it. Right. I can keep doing this. And I can keep doing that. Well, here's some evidence that we actually have some some damage or accumulating in the arteries around the heart, and and it correlates with higher risk. And I, I usually use the MESA score. Um, I don't, is that the right score to use? So I, I Google yeah. MESA score, M-E-S-A, and then mm -hmm. I fill out the little form and, and include the coronary score, the a Gaston score, and then it spits mm -hmm. out a ten-year risk. And it's interesting; it gives you a ten-year risk had you not done the, the calcium scan and given this, this cal, this Agastin score, this calcium score, um, here's what your risk is now. Yeah. 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 And sometimes people get a great, great news, which is the calcium score is just zero. Right. And that's, that's wonderful news as well. And How reassuring is that when you get a zero? Well, I think the data says that, you know, the overall risk of a cardiovascular event for up to 10 years is, is pretty low at that point. Um, does it take, you know, would it tell me, you know, not that the patient should not need to do anything about their cholesterol? Absolutely not, you know, in terms of a lifestyle perspective. But I do think it, you know, gives you the confidence that, hey, let's, let's work on this. Let's get you into something sustainable. This is very positive overall, uh, but it's not a ticket home, you know, it's, it's not, yeah, so... Okay, that's helpful. Thanks for uh, going deep into the coronary scores. Are there any other um, uh, testing that you that you uh, recommend doing? You mentioned a stress test. Well, sure. I mean, I think a stress test. I I would only do a stress test in a patient who had multiple risks, strong family history. You know, maybe a very uh, high uh, coronary calcium score in the absence of symptoms. 
but generally the stress test is not needed for asymptomatic people. Um, you know, just on any kind of a routine basis. So, you know, most people are going to tell you when something's wrong and you're going to get some kind of a hint to, to go on to do a stress test. So I would be hard pressed to recommend a stress test for, for every person on any kind of interval. I would use it on a, a patient by patient basis. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one thing I've seen is we get, we seem to get a lot of cardiolite uh, that was at the Sestamibi, the nuclear medicine stress test, which are- right much more expensive than the alternatives and also carry a lot of radiation, right? Do you, do you think right. we overdo stress tests or the cardiolite? I do, I do. I think that we overdo that. You know, I've always been more in favor of if we wanna add something to an EKG stress test is to add the stress echo, to add the echo to that. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, you know, it doesn't involve any radiation and, um, you know, I think you get the left ventricular function, you pick up some other things with it. Um, so I think the echo, when we can do it as a stress echo instead of a stress MIBI, it's, it's great. That's, that's helpful to know. <clears throat> but, but, you know, when, you know, as a primary care doc, I see uh, oftentimes we'll refer to a cardiologist and it seems like that's the tool they're going to pull out of their toolbox is the stress right. test. And, and, and we just, so it, it seems like maybe we should be a little more um, cautious about when we use it because there's there's a risk with getting too much testing, right? There's a risk mm -hmm. with getting a stress test when it isn't warranted. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, I think well, there's there's no end to the number of you know false positives, right? Uh, that lead on you know take you to an angiogram. So it's you know there's so much to be said for the history. Right. Um, and as you know, you say as a primary care physician, many times you feel obligated to send them over to the cardiologist and, you know, to cross every T and dot every I. But when they get to the cardiologist, it's really important that first and foremost, they look at, listen to the history. You know, what's the odds that this is coronary ischemia? What's the odds that this is cardiac pain? And and so, you know, using this, the least amount of testing as possible, gain as much as you can from history, and then select the test that's just going to give you the answer. And, and if you need to ramp it up and do more advanced testing, you know, that's fine too. But you can gain so much about looking at the likelihood just based on the history. Um, you know, and similarly, sometimes you can you can get false negative tests. You know, I've had that happen where patients, they sound every bit like they've got angina. And I, I just know they've got angina. And, and yet when I do some kind of a test, it's, it's negative. Well, for me, I'm still gonna treat them uh, for all the cardiovascular risk because I know that is angina that they're experiencing. And you know, this is an interesting thing. Um, that I would love to talk about if this is a good time, uh, which is non-occlusive disease in women and, and angina. Please do. So, you know, uh, you, for years in my practice, I saw women with chest pain and they had been into the emergency room and, you know, ruled out for a myocardial infarction, right? Sent home. 
I would say too often, you know, told that this was not related to the heart at all. And then they would come and see me. And I would say, wow, this really sounds like angina. And yeah, you didn't have a heart attack and, and that's all great. But for you to walk away and think that there's nothing going on here is, is really a disservice to you. So a lot of those women would go on to have positive stress tests, uh, but negative angiograms. You know, so they go through a treadmill, they'd have chest pain, they would have EKG changes, sometimes no myocardial perfusion abnormalities, and sometimes no wall motion abnormalities. And then they would go on to have a coronary angiogram, which I think was, you know, entirely appropriate under those circumstances. And they would have clean coronaries. Right. So they, and, and then they would come back. I was just going to say the yeah, angiogram is sort of the gold standard. We're injecting dye into the arteries and taking x-rays of them. And we can, we can see without any um, question the degree of blockage in arteries or with much less um, variability. Right. So, okay. But remember, you're looking at the exterior of the artery. Right. Right. Um, and you're not looking at the interior with rare exceptions. I mean, you can go in and do an intracoronary ultrasound, but generally if the angiogram looks like this is, you know, an artery that doesn't have blockages, no one wants to put a catheter inside there to, you know, instrument inside the artery, nor do I, because, you know, you can disrupt things in there. You can cause spasm. It's, it's, really not appropriate. So the important thing is women leave a lot of times with the fact that, with the understanding that they have clean coronaries, everything's fine. And they're further, you know, now have maybe believed that this is all in their head, uh, that the, you know, that the coronary, uh, I'm sorry, the chest pain is in their head. But, but what we've found over more and more time is that oftentimes these women who really have classic angina, so I'm, I'm just talking about, they get angina when they're enormously stressed, they get angina when they exert themselves, they get angina when they go up a hill and it's relieved with rest. So very classic anginal symptoms. We'll have um, small vessel disease that's throughout their heart. Uh, and so it's that homogeneous appearance they're getting less blood flow throughout their heart. So they do have ischemia on an EKG, right? but they don't show it on wall motion because there's no heterogeneity of wall motion. And they don't see it on a perfusion scan because again, there's no heterogeneity on the perfusion scan. It all looks quote unquote normal. Um, so the, the worry in that is that they leave risk factors unattended. They leave angina unattended, which I don't think is healthy, you know? And, um, and what's also really important is that these women, because this is small vessel, because it's the lining, because it's endothelial, they benefit, I would say, even more than men from lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. So when they do things to heal that endothelium, when they become exercisers, you know, with in a monitored and progressive way, when they change their diet and, you know, amplify, you know, anti-inflammatory foods and food
foods that nourish the endothelium, you know, nitrate precursors and things like that, they get, you know, more bang for the buck out of those kinds of things. And equally, when they do stress management techniques that we know can also, you know, we have this amazing um, brain heart connection, uh, they get even more value out of that. Um, I possibly should be careful about the more, but it's just that we don't see that type of microvascular small vessel disease as often in men. Hmm. So, um, into, so lifestyle becomes even more imperative for women. Fascinating. So, well, I guess that's an appropriate segue to talk about lifestyle. So um, someone who's worried about heart disease, which should be everybody because it's our leading killer and every woman, um, because I believe it's leading killer of women. Yeah. Uh, and, and so what, what things can we do not, not to detect, not to risk stratify, but actually reduce our risk of, of complications or of death from heart disease? Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I think it goes back to those, um, you know, the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, you know, that we focus on, um, you know, with first and foremost is optimizing nutritional lifestyle and eating patterns and, you know, focusing on plant predominant foods, because we know those are where we get the, the most benefit in terms of anti-inflammatory foods and the polyphenols and the flavanols and all the things. And in, at the top of the list for those, it seems in cardiovascular diseases, you know, green leafies, dark yellow vegetables, grains, and fruits. And, um, you know, then of course we know that it's just diversity, diversity and, and bringing in more and more diverse uh, plant uh, foods. And then in the avoiding the pro-inflammatory foods, you know, the red meat, uh, processed meats, organ meats, and, you know, refined carbohydrates. Uh, we see those as being pro-inflammatory uh, for progression, you know, initiation and progression of cardiovascular disease. So diet is, you know, one of the dominant pillars uh, for lifestyle interventions. And I know you share that opinion as well. Um, you know, but I'm just really pro exercise as well. Um, you know, I do find that people drop off in exercise once they have a family. They're, the young children's needs are, you know, paramount. And so they often don't do that piece of self-care. Um, but it's so important in terms of um, cardiovascular prevention, as well as treatment of just, you know, keeping those vessels um, and the heart as a pump strengthened. And really, you know, facilitating this endothelial function mm. where we're putting increased blood flow through the coronary arteries on a regular basis. So exercise, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think everybody gets that one and it's so powerful. I mean, even things like breast cancer, um, you know, are prevented and respond to exercise in a big, powerful way. And, and you made a great point that um, we, we, we stop exercising and especially a lot of the, the mothers out there who are too busy driving their kids around from event to event, standing right. on the sidelines or sitting on the sidelines, 
yeah. while the kid is getting the exercise and and uh, wouldn't wouldn't it be better if we could find a way to we both get exercise at the same time yeah 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 when i was when my kids were young it was uh, those were when they first were coming out with those what i think they were called in those days baby joggers and they had the big wheel on the front they were a stroller with a big wheel so that you could take them over you know yes. uh, dirt roads if you wanted and uh and so forth and uh that was a you know just such an important i think i got it off a of craigslist or something equivalent and boy that was a great way to keep my exercise up when my kids were little uh but you're right that um it's so important in in recovering from pregnancies and in just the self-care that women need to take you know, in those years and not wait until the kids are out of school and so forth. Right, right. Yeah. Um, exercising straight through a pregnancy and, and in the postpartum period and on into life, it's one of the most important medicines you can, you can take for, for certainly for heart health, right? Yeah. I love it. That's great. Thank you. So we, we're walking through our pillars and we, we talked about nutrition and, and focused particularly on anti-inflammatories. And I wanted to ask you, you said leafy greens, that they're rich in uh, all sorts of anti-inflammatory compounds. You, you mentioned dark yellows. Yeah, dark yellows. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly, uh, David, what that is. I, I think it's just that um, a reflection of, you know, eat the colors of the rainbow. Okay. Uh, you know, in terms of getting all of the variety of antioxidants that we can get when we right. get different colors of vegetables. Right. Are there other specific foods that you would call out that seem to have a heart, heart protective effects? Well, I, I think, you know, flax seed has been a, a, an interesting one for me as a sort of a functional food for hypertension. Um, so that's an interesting one to keep in the mix. Um, I think to some degree, uh, a, mo a very modest amount of nuts is, is important, but because of the healthy fats, but, but we know that um, processed oils are not the way we wanna go, even in, um, you know, even if they are, you know, a plant-based oils, obviously. Uh, but they're processed and so forth. So whole food fats, but in very, uh, I would say, minimal amounts in terms of cardiovascular. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's cool. And um, how about sodium? That seems to be really important. Um, yes. With the global burden of disease survey that like the number, the leading um, nutritional cause of early death is, is sodium, excess sodium intake. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, I think the, where we find that is in um, anytime we're doing takeout food, anytime, even if we're saying we're, we're, vet, we're taking out something that's vegetarian in a, you know, from a takeout or going to a restaurant, you can be sure that chef is more concerned about you coming back and will load that up with sodium uh, because that's his, his or her audience is, is very interested in that. You know, and then then the second thing is just you know your ingredients uh, from from the grocery store, and a very little part of reducing sodium is what you do actually in the kitchen. You know, most people are not liberally salting um, in their cooking, so the minimal amount that they'll use in cooking is usually fine. It's it's really the stock and the 
processed foods and, and the restaurant takeout foods where, where people are getting really unforeseen amounts of, of sodium, you know, that's kind of slipping by them. And yeah, so great, important. Yeah. Great point. A lot of people think they're eating healthy, but um, when you look at the sodium intake, it's still very, very high, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's, that's good to know. Um, home prepared meals is helpful. <laughs> Circling back again to cul culinary medicine. Right, right. Okay, great. So we talked about lipids, we talked about anti-inflammatories, we talked about sodium. Is there any, any other elements of the, the, the diet that are particularly important for heart disease? Right, did, did we, we talk about total fat and cholesterol? Well, I mean, we talked about, yeah, you wanna, Minimum, you keep keep the total fat down, and especially avoid the unhealthy fats, which would be the meat-based or saturated uh, trans fats, and also, yeah, you're right, dietary uh, cholesterol, right, as well, right, right, right. So, yeah. The more uh, the more eggs you eat, the the sooner you die, and uh, mostly due to cardiovascular causes, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, and so okay, good. So we kind of covered nutrition. Very, very important for heart disease. Um, following those fats, by the way, uh, going back to testing, um, mm -hmm. we want to what? We want to, as women, we want to check our lipid panel once in a while. Are there fancy tests we should be getting? Uh, right. C-reactive protein or a good old fashioned lipid panel? What do you suggest? Well, you know, I think a good, you know, obviously a good place to start is a good old fashioned lipid panel um, and, and looking, you know, at the H. H, I'm sorry, looking at the LDL and uh, total cholesterol, you know, women have, I think, been a little bit misled since we're on the topic of women and heart disease with this concept that HDL is so protective that I don't even need to look at these other variables because, oh my goodness, look at this high HDL that I'm carrying around. You know, I think I fell into that a little bit, you know, that data early in my cardiology career, but I soon came to find that there were many women showing up on my doorstep who had these beautifully high HDLs and lo and behold, they'd had a cardiac event. And, um, you know, when we go deeper into the HDL story, uh, including if we were to do detailed HDL testing, right, the subtypes, we find that not all HDL is protective. Uh, so, you know, what I've kind of come with rather than doing that detailed HDL testing is like, I'm gonna look first and foremost at LDL. I'm gonna pay big attention if the HDL is low. So I know if the HDL is low, this is a cardiovascular risk. What I don't take is the inverse, that if the HDL is high, this patient is not at cardiovascular risk. So, you know, we sometimes see these folks that have pretty low total cholesterol, pretty low LDL, and very low HDL. That's way more concerning to me, um, that low HDL. And I'm not really reassured, reassured by somebody who has a high total, a high HDL, and also a high LDL. And so, you know, I'm still going to primarily look at the LDL and say there's still enormous benefit to you getting that, that LDL down. Do you have a, a target? Because some some would argue, some have argued that the, the the what's normal in the lab is actually too high. It's just based on high cholesterol is so rampant in uh, Western yes. society that they just said that's normal. But it's that's still a level when when you have an 
LDL of what, 100, you still could get heart disease. You want to get it even lower to, to have zero risk, right? Right. Right. And, I, you know, I think that if, uh, if somebody has no other cardiovascular risks, you know, they're not diabetic, they don't have a family history, uh, they've never been a smoker, and, and, you know, all these variables, and their LDL is around 100, I mean, I usually will say it'd be nicer if it was lower, but I'm probably not going to get as excited. Uh, but, you know, lower is better. We know that LDL, uh, the LDL level is what cor correlates most with atheromatous plaque. So lower is always going to be better. Um, and, you know, many of the studies, there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, that there was concern that you could get someone's LDL too low. And I can remember this when I was using a lot of statin therapy. When I would find patients come back with an LDL 40, I'd be like, well, wait, 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 wait. You know, I don't know that I like that. I don't know what the long-term effects of that very low LDL are. But fortunately, you know, I think most of the data says there's no risk from that lower LDL. When we've seen it, it's usually, when it's correlated with a poor outcome, it's usually because the patient is getting that low LDL because they're sick in some other way, right? And that's that's the, the main risk. So, so um, yeah, so I think, you know, lower is better. And okay. certainly we used to use the target in all of our patients with established disease that we wanted the LDL less than 70. Okay. So it's not a bad target for all of us. Good to hear. While on the topic of testing, are there other tests that, that you follow over time? Well, you know, in some patients, I'm really trying to take a deep, deeper look. And, and in women, I think the data for C-reactive protein is a little bit more compelling. That, uh, But I'm not as uh, impressed with C-reactive protein as another marker. Um, by and large, I think it's not yet, we don't yet know the best marker uh, for understanding inflammation as it relates to, you know, increasing uh, the risk of cardiovascular disease. I think CRP, cardioreactive protein is maybe okay for population studies, but I'm not sure it's okay for the individual. Um, I say that because I've seen women that I've done everything for uh, including even statins and their CRP is still high. Uh, and I'm just, and then I've seen plenty of people where the CRP was just yeah. normal. So I don't think it's a great test. And, and then sometimes, but I, I still look at it, um, to see if it's, if, if it can tell me anything more. And then there's, you know, a lot of interesting, um, detailed tests on insulin resistance as a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, there's interesting tests on the subfractions of the of LDL and, and HDL, LDL particle number. Um, you know, they're all useful, but I don't do those in every patient. Okay. Um, because I just don't think they're they're necessary and they don't guide me. Um, when I'm equivocating on somebody's uh, risk, then I'll maybe take a little deeper dive and look at some of those things. Got it. Okay, so nothing else really bubbles to the to the surface beyond right. so our our lipids, our blood pressure, our what hemoglobin A1C for right. as a measure of of insulin resistance or or diabetes state. Diabetes, yeah. Okay, and so 
clearly for heart disease prevention, we want all those to be optimized, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so we were walking through our pillars. Um, are any of the other pillars uh, uh, warranted to, to call out here uh, is particularly protective of, of the female heart? Well, you know, I think the stress management piece is a pretty big player in women's lives um, and their cardiovascular risk. Um, I haven't delved into that research too much recently, but when I did several years ago, uh, it was interesting that uh, stress was a significant factor in uh, the development of cardiac events for women. And we know there's good stress and, and um, that makes us thrive and is exciting. And then there's you know, less good stress. And, and so for women, it turned out that actually relationship stress uh, was the highest risk for them. Work stress, not so much. And this was an interesting study and I wish I could quote it, but it's been a long time since I looked at it. Um, but it was done in, uh, I think in uh, a Finnish country and looked at uh, women who'd had cardiovascular events. And it really wasn't, they didn't really rate work stress. It wasn't women going into the workforce in those, you know, those days like, oh, well, that's really changing their cardiovascular risk. It really had more to do with family and specifically with relationship stress. Mm. So, um, you know, and I, I think that when we look at chest pain that is related to stress. I've seen that in a lot of my female patients. We know that can be related to vasospasm of the coronary artery. Uh, so I really, I really believe that um, women, you know, even more need to take care of looking at what are the provokers of stress and really how to condition themselves to have a better stress reaction or a better uh, response to stress and, and, and a better conditioning for the stress response. I've read in, um, there's a book called The Upside of Stress by um, uh, McGonigal, uh, mm -hmm. fascinating book. And uh, she characterizes some research that shows that when people simply take the same stressor and, and call it excitement instead of stress, mm -hmm. that alone was, was protective uh, against a number of, of uh, adverse health outcomes. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that you can see that play out for people. You know, one person's interpretation of the, the same event is, oh, this is exciting. This is an adventure. This is a challenge. And yeah. another person's is, oh, oh, OMG. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm remembering some of that's personality, how you're going to take life stressors. But some, I'm remembering at least one study where people were randomized to mm -hmm. either say, this is, I'm excited versus I'm stressed. And, uh, and so just that language. But, um, but be, besides that, obviously there's probably more important things we can do to manage stress. What would be your prescription to someone who you think has sort of a lot of stress in their life? Right, so I think it's, you know, I think it's personal for, for every person, but I, but I do think some form of mindfulness meditation, some form of, could be spiritual, could be reading. Um, you know, one of the fascinating areas that I have looked into is, is um, heart rate variability, which is a kind of an interesting concept um, to explain. But, you know, for many of us, uh, heart rate variability will mean, and, and I'm gonna 
talk about this and you're going to see where I'm going to go with it in a second. How does this relate to stress? But, you know, heart rate variabilities for some people might mean, oh, you know, my heart rate in the morning is 50 when I wake up and boy, in the afternoon, I don't know why it's about 75, you know? So they think that's heart rate variability. Well, that, yes, that is hour by hour variability. But when we're thinking about this term heart rate variability, it's really the beat by beat, beat one to beat two to beat three to beat four. And what, what we know is that when people are not sleeping well, when people are stressed, when people are overtraining, physically overtraining, that their heart rate variability narrows. So you would say, hey, isn't that going to be good? They're just going along exactly the same every beat to beat, but it's not actually. You want that variability. You can think of it as uh, you know, waxing and waning of that beat. And it's interesting because that's, we used to do a study and we don't do it, signal averaged EKG. Do you remember that Vaguely. ever? Vaguely. And it's a, it, it, it's a marker. We, we used to do this after post-MI patients to assess their arrhythmic risk and signal average DKG looked at heart rate variability. And if you had low heart rate variability, you were at more risk for sudden cardiac death. So this was in patients who had, you know, a big, big MI and a lot of tissue lost. So now, so when you do meditative, you know, not necessarily a guru meditation, but just mindfulness-based stress relaxation, relaxing things, you improve heart rate variability. Lots of science on that. So to me, this is all a conditioning. Not only does it make you feel better, but it actually is a healthier physiologic response. And there are some interesting ways that you can monitor this at home. There's, you know, there's a device called HeartMath where it can measure you know, heart rate variability. And it was impressive to me when I, when I did this on myself that I could, uh, in the matter of two minutes, change that heart rate variability. So it would start as one thing. And then if I applied a relaxation intervention to myself of some, of some nature, I could in real time uh, see the change. And to me, that's, that's just fascinating. It's just the heart, heart brain wiring. Right. I, I have one of those as well, a heart math device. And it's fascinating. It's, it's really a matter of slowing your breathing uh, is mm -hmm. mainly, but it's fascinating how you, you get that immediate biofeedback that, mm -hmm. that you're, you're optimizing, you're increasing your uh, heart rate variability. I hope that that activity translates to lower risk of heart, heart disease. I guess the evidence mm -hmm. suggests that's the case. That's right. Terrific. So we've covered um, stress. To uh, I mean, obviously, we haven't thoroughly covered any of these topics. We're, we're hitting the highlights here, but um, stress uh, management. Uh, we talked about exercise and diet. We didn't talk so much about some of the other pillars of healthy lifestyle medicine, like sleep. Uh, you did mention relationships and relationship stress. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other one would be substances, which obviously tobacco is no good. I guess there's alcohol. So any other topics in there we should add to our checklist? Boy, I'm not, I'm not seeing them, David. So let me know if you, if you well, do. So, okay. So sleep, not, not as much of an uh, impact on oh, heart disease. Yeah. 
No, I no, absolutely. Sleep is is critical. And I would say, you know, there with the with the exception of uh, sleep apnea, I would say that probably sleep is more more dis disrupted if we're going back to women's lives uh, for many women between, um, you know, child needs, uh, breastfeeding needs, which might put them more, you know, in getting up in the middle of the night um, and then hormonal, you know, fluctuations and changes there. Um, sometimes I think women don't have a, cho a chance. I mean, they start out, you know, with getting this sleep disruption when children are, are little. And then just about that time, their kids become teenagers and that doesn't make you sleepless. I don't know what does. And then, uh, and then they go through, you know, hormonal changes and they're getting night, you know, hot flashes and uh, some changes. So sleep hygiene and a real attention to that is so important um, in, in just lifestyle management for sure. Okay, so that's key. Um, it's far healthier to get eight hours of sleep a night than to get like four or five, right? As far as right. risk, risk for heart disease. Yeah, and I'm always impressed that that um, when I, you know, really ask people, you know, go through that those pillars and, um, you know, that sleep. There's just a lot of people that uh, have a lot of sleep disturbance, and they're suffering with it, and it it's just impacting all of their other lifestyle behaviors. Um, and there's so much that can be done in terms of just um, resetting that and just doing basic, basic um, structure, you know, and uh, to get yourself to go to bed at the right time, you know, fall asleep um, and stay asleep. And there's just a lot of uh, levers that can be pulled to optimize that. But if right. we don't focus on it, it doesn't happen. Right. Get that TV out of the bedroom. Um, don't lie in bed awake. Uh, don't expose yourself to the blue or bright lights before bed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, avoid the caffeine. The alcohol is, is a disruptor of sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And we should probably uh, have a separate checklist on just sleep and how vitally important it is. Um, so this is great. This rounds out a pretty good and pretty comprehensive, pretty long checklist. I have 17 items on it right now. Is there anything we didn't talk about, Kate, that you think we should add? Gosh, David, I really think we covered that's covered the, it all. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a good. I mean, obviously, I wish I'd had this checklist for all the years I practiced cardiology before I was so focused on lifestyle medicine. I would have just handed this over to my patients. Well, it's, it's, it's a good point you make because I think what we've tried to capture here is your approach to heart disease and particularly around prevention. Mm -hmm. and, and it's probably quite, in, in a lot of ways, quite distinct from how most, uh, most of traditional medicine approaches this topic, right? Because most mm -hmm. of traditional medicine doesn't have 17 things on the list. They have statins and, and some other drugs and and the tests and, and not so much, you know, do we, and, and I, I know that cardiologists are getting much better about this and doctors are getting better about this, but not as much about the nutrition, not as much about yeah. uh, the exercise or, or when we talk about it, it's lip service, mm -hmm. you know, eat less, exercise more. I check those two boxes right there. You know, literally it's, it's often that's the extent of the counseling you get from 
a cardiologist, for example, right? Absolutely. It's, it's oftentimes, I, I used to say it was the, as you're going out the door, it was great to see you, you know, try to eat better, move a little bit more. And I'll see you in three months or I'll see you in six months. And of course, patients remembered that, but you know, if, if you're not more prescriptive than that, and if you don't get into the weeds more, so often I felt like it was just a disservice because they would come back and say, I know you told me to eat better, but they wouldn't know how, mm -hmm. right? I, I didn't give them enough to quote unquote bite on. Mm -hmm. um, and so in many ways they would come back discouraged because their efforts uh, didn't lead to an improvement in their blood pressure or an improvement in their lipids. And, um, and so that, that sort of you know, quick counseling, sort of little bit of inspiration uh, sometimes can just be incredibly, um, you know, makes people feel shameful and that they, they're not doing their part when in fact they really want to. Uh, they really want to, but if you're not giving them some real guidance or some prescriptions and goals and the support that they need, um, you know, they, they can't succeed and, and then they feel bad about that. Right. And, and that's, I, I guess, uh, the kinds of things we tell them is what, that this is really, really important and you have the power to, to really reduce almost to zero your, your cardiac risk if, if you make big enough changes. And yeah. here's the kind of changes that it's not just eat in moderation, quote unquote, it's no, here's a list of foods here. And you're taking it to the level of recipes. Here's mm -hmm. recipes, here's ways of cooking. Um, so, so this is a very different experience that someone's going to get when they go and see Dr. Collings than, than traditional medicine. And I know we're coming around, but we, and that's part of the goal with this checklist is to try to get that message out there. And by the way, we will change, uh, make this a handout that's suitable for mm -hmm. cardiologists to have on the wall or hand out to their patients or patients mm -hmm. to hand to their cardiologist or their doctor. Right. Um, so, uh, so we've, we've come a long way. We've, we've, we've put together this great, awesome list that's like, gosh, I wish we could have transport this information back 20, 30 years ago. And I wish we could spread this throughout the world. If we were, if, if, if this checklist were to be followed by everyone to whom it, it should apply, what would be the impact? You know, the impact would be enormous. I mean, when you just, when you just think of, you know, 30%, one in three individuals in the United States has heart disease, right? Or dies from heart disease. One in three dies from heart disease, I should say, you know, and, and another one third or more have heart disease that they just don't know it yet. Um, so, you know, in, enormous uh, power in this. And, you know, we know, uh, you know, through, you know, regions of the world, the blue zones and, and, and so forth, that, people who naturally follow this kind of a lifestyle because of the circumstances that they're in and the environment, um, you know, have a very, very low incidence of heart disease and other chronic diseases. So when we look at it over time, sure, there's going to be sporadic events, but when we look at it at a population level, we just know that we could just dial down this heart disease in the United States and, and globally uh, by dialing up lifestyle and really realizing um, that people have so much more in their control. So as I, Dr. 
go ahead. Yeah, so I often, when I start, and I'm not, an, I'm not a scientist like an epigenetics whiz, but I oftentimes start my talks with really juxtaposing genetics with epigenetics. And because I think it's fascinating, this idea that we can turn on and turn off gene expression, mm. right? The, the DNA can be there, but we can turn it on uh, the expression of this genotype or into a phenotype. So, you know, epigenetics, I sort of feel like is, you know, is the rocket science of lifestyle. And that's why we can look at the same genetic pool and apply the, the lifestyle and the environment differently and get totally different outcomes. You know, and that's what's happening in, I think, the blue zones and, and, in, uh, and in individuals who follow these principles. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of research that suggests, um, well, as Dr. Esselstyn says, uh, heart disease is a toothless paper tiger that need not exist. I think I've heard him say that m multiple times. Right. Right. Um, but isn't that a fascinating idea that the heart disease need not exist? And if everybody were to follow this particular checklist, it would be a lot less common. I'm not going to say zero, but a lot less common. I mean, we're talking about like slashing rates of heart disease, right? Like over 50% if, if people were to follow this list effectively, right? right? Right. Yeah. And I think people kind of have come to accept that this is just part of aging, but it doesn't need to be actually, no. you know? Yeah. Oh, I wish we could clone you, Dr. Collings, and, uh, <laughs> and spread you uh, all over the country um, because there's so much suffering that happens that really is kind of needless in the end and could have been, been prevented, could have been avoided if people had the right information and developed the right skills at the right time. Well, I don't want to take any more of your time. This has been a, a stimulating conversation for me. Uh, and I hope for our listeners, um, we're going to package this in as best we can with as many scientific references that we discussed and alluded to in the conversation. And, uh, and we'll put it out there for the rest of the world to um, enjoy. Um, many, many thanks for taking the time today to, uh, to spend this with me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks to you for, for doing this and, and making this available. I think it's, it's great. I love it. Oh, I love it. Uh, this is so fun. So Dr. Kate Collings, um, many, many thanks. I wish you all the best. Happy presidency. That's right. That's right. Okay, David. Take care. Farewell. See so wasn't that conversation great? Don't you love Dr. Kate Collings? She is such an effective leader and she yet she is uh, very soft-spoken. And I just love that about Dr. Collings. So at this point, I thought I would do something rather avant-garde, we're going to read you the checklist. So it's been, it's been a few days later, and I've had the opportunity to spend some time, research the topic a bit more, kind of craft things into this, uh, this checklist, and I will now read it for you. So here is the checklist to prevent cardiovascular disease in women. Number one, regularly measure your blood pressure, blood cholesterol panel, blood glucose measures, including hemoglobin A1C. Work with your doctor or provider to control these numbers. Number two, a coronary artery calcium scan can help you quantitate the blockage in your coronary arteries. That is to say the arteries around your heart. It does involve radiation, but this scan is appropriate in people with medium risk for cardiovascular disease who are willing to make the healthier lifestyle changes. Number three, know the signs of inadequate blood supply to the heart, that is to say angina. 
when women have angina or, or angina, they sometimes have chest pain and sometimes not. Frequently, women have more subtle symptoms like either nausea, shortness of breath, or chest pain. Avoid, number four is avoid dangerous testing that you don't need. So a stress test is usually only warranted for people with an angina symptoms like chest pain or shortness of breath or some of those other symptoms in a setting where you really have some degree of suspicion of cardiovascular disease. Um, that is to say people with multiple of our risk factors, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or diabetes. Stress testing carries risk, especially the uh, nuclear medicine stress testing. It does carry a pretty hefty dose of radiation. Number five, beware false reassurance from doctors. Male doctors tend to not recognize heart disease in women because the symptoms can be different in men and also because there's a bit of a bias that uh, heart disease is a, is a man's condition. When we know heart disease is and cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in women. Number six, rethink your food. So, so much of the Western diet that we have and the foods we have been taught to enjoy are bad for our heart and our blood vessels. Shift away from the highly processed foods to more unprocessed foods and shift away from the animal products to more plant-based foods. Number seven, anti-inflammatory foods are especially beneficial. Leafy greens, dark yellow vegetables, fruit, intact whole grains, spices, herbs, darker foods in general carry the are more of those anti-inflammatories. You want to avoid the pro-inflammatory foods such as red meat and processed meats and processed foods in general. Eat mostly healthy fats in small quantities. Flax seeds seem to benefit hypertension. A modest amount of nuts are important. Oils are a processed food and are mostly unhealthy with the possible exception of perhaps extra virgin olive oil in small quantities. Overall, reduce your fat intake, especially the saturated fats and the trans fats. Number nine, monitor your lipids. A low cost lipid panel is the key test that you wanna get. Most important measure on that lipid panel may be your LDL. The goal for LDL is, is under 100, but if you have uh, other cardiac risks, uh, then your goal is really to get that LDL below 70. Number 10, reduce sodium. Processed foods, fast foods, restaurant foods tend to be quite high in salt. When you eat out, ask for less salt and less fat while you're at it. And ideally, eat at home as much as possible. Number 11, exercise. Super important for the female heart. Women too commonly stop exercising when they get busy with caregiving. I have seen this happen so many times in my life. Women selflessly driving people and not exercising. Number 12, sleep seven to nine hours per night. Shoot for about eight, seven is acceptable. Sleep is critical and it is commonly disrupted in many women. Healthy sleep habits are super important, especially in women. Some research suggests that acupuncture, mindfulness, reflexology, exercise, and yoga can help women sleep better. Number 13, de-stress. Excitement is good stress, and it can help us thrive, but 
Relationship stress can be especially harmful for a woman's heart. Mindfulness meditation can help a lot. Heart rate variability is an important indicator of stress. You can improve your heart rate variability and your stress level with slowed breathing. Try to take five seconds for an inhale and five seconds for an exhale. And continue that slowed, calm breathing. And number 14, while you're breathing, breathe clean air. Minimize your exposure to pollution and in particular the particulates by avoiding outdoor activity on high pollution days and perhaps uh, swap out your gas stove. And that is our checklist to prevent cardiovascular disease in women. Thanks for joining us this time and I look forward to seeing you next time.